Man, Jay, the X-Men recruit a lot of villains. Bearing in mind, of course, that in a hierarchical world, a lot of people fighting for basic rights are labeled villains. Anyway, they're all about second chances and character growth, at least in theory. True. I mean, Emma Frost's about to be running a school for mutants with Banshee, and the first time she met the X-Men, she kidnapped them and held them hostage in the Hellfire Club. No, she didn't. She definitely did. Kitty Pride got them out, remember? Oh, no, I'm not denying that Emma kidnapped the X-Men. That just wasn't the first time they'd met her. It wasn't? It was not. Although it does make sense that you'd think that, because even Emma and the X-Men actually forgot until 2011. Did Xavier wipe their memories or something? Plausible guess, but no, it was an evolutionary. I'm not even going to touch that. So how did they end up together the actual first time? Well, let's see. The Brotherhood, under Magneto, kidnapped a drugged, straight-jacketed Emma from the Essex Clinic. Wait, Essex as in... Mr. Sinister. Yep. What did he want with her? Inconclusive, but I'm going to go with DNA. Seems plausible. Was the Brotherhood rescuing her? Lord, no. They were taking her to the Xavier School so she could use Cerebro to kill humanity. That's very cinematic of them. Ooh, and give mutant kind a rousing pep talk. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 267 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to a grab bag of X-Men stuff. So, we are at the very cusp, at the very gates of the Phalanx Covenant... And we want to make sure we cover everything before the Phalanx Covenant, before we actually dive in there. And so it's a lot of little one-shots here for some reason. I guess they were maybe just killing time so they could line all the books up. And by killing time, I don't mean these are bad stories, but we don't have those big, deep, sink-your-teeth-into-them arcs that we've been covering recently. You know, I disagree with you that these are killing time. I think a lot of what we've got here, and in fact, definitely what at least one of the stories we're covering today is, is wrapping up dangling plot threads. Yeah, that may be true. I mean, the Phalanx Covenant leading into Generation X as it does, in a way, is, if not a fresh start for the X universe, at least a new direction. So dealing with a lot of the stuff that's come before makes a great deal of sense. And I agree, especially one of these stories is very much that. Yeah, and Kenny X-Men 314 is very directly going to be a bridge to the start of Generation X. Mm Mm-hmm. So... Since we have a lot to cover, I vote we dive right the hell in. All right, so... He's a closeted CPA with a frosty streak and a reputation as class clown. She's a diamond-studded supervillain with a brain that can kill and a penchant for raising hellfire. It's Body Swap, the game show about a true meeting of the minds. Our first contestant, Bobby Drake, is the youngest of the original five x His powers initially included turning himself into a literal snowman, wearing adorable booties, and making juvenile jokes. But thanks to a run-in with both some frost giants and the sadistic and unhinged Mikhail Rasputin, Bobby learned that he only tapped into a fraction of his icy mutant potential. Up against him today is Emma Frost, the telepathic white queen of the thoroughly evil Hellfire Club. 
Emma's credentials include blowing up Firestar's pony, wearing skimpy lingerie as formal wear, and running the Massachusetts Academy where she trained her fuchsia-clad teenage hellions. But thanks to a run-in with future jerk Trevor Fitzroy's Sentinels, most of her hellions were killed, and she ended up in a coma in the X-Men's basement. That is until a day or two when a power surge in the mansion knocked Bobby right out and right next to Emma. Let's see what wacky hijinks are in store for these crazy kids today on Bodyswap. Those wacky hijinks are enumerated in Uncanny X-Men number 314, Early Frost. Okay, but seriously, that would be a really bad game show. Very unethical, if nothing else. Well, presumably people would have to consent ahead of time. It wouldn't actually play out like this issue. People do anything to get on television, it's true. Well, and it's, it's, I imagine it would be like, there, there are, there are people for whom it would be intriguing. There are, there are all the games about, you know, people trading places or reality shows where families swap houses or swap spouses or whatever. Like, that's a thing. Well, anyway, this game show uh, is written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Lee Weeks, inked by Bill Sinkevich, and colored by Steve Bucolato. I love the art on this issue. I think a lot of that is down to Sinkevich, and... I want to talk first about why I love the art. Um, any of you who have seen Orphan Black are going to immediately know what I'm talking about when I talk about how hard it is to portray a character who's actually another character. Um, I'm thinking right now of uh, Tatiana Maslany um, playing a clone pretending to be another clone. And here we've got the comic book equivalent of that. We've got Weeks and Sinkevich drawing Iceman possessed by Emma Frost or drawing Emma Frost in Iceman's body. And that is a hell of a task and a hell of a thing to get across, and they do a beautiful job. And part of it's evident just because Emma's version of Iceman is very different. She's using his powers in a much more impressive way, transforming him into a much less human form. I think we described her last time as Jack Frost from Hell. Well, that that is effectively differentiates this Iceman from Bobby, but it doesn't clearly establish as Emma, which is what the body language and expressions really do, I think. It works so well. Now, we have Lee Weeks here, not Joe Matarera, who, of course, is the artist um, for whom John Romita Jr. was kicked off the book. Matarera will be back pretty soon after this, and will do a long stint on Uncanny, but for now, hey, nice villain. Yeah, Weeks is great, and this this version of Bobby, I mentioned it before the first time we saw this this version of, of Possessed Iceman. Like, it's just so iconic. It's one of those images, one of those issues where after you've read it, it just never quite leaves your mind. And some of the narration stuck with me as well, like this opening here. She sees the stars with eyes that are not her own. She can feel the pounding of a heart, feel it pounding in a chest that belongs to someone else. At long last, she can taste the night. She doesn't care that it's with someone else's tongue. Chills. And not just because it's very cold, because of ice powers. Now, the first thing that is immediately evident is that Emma in Bobby's body, with Bobby's powers, is a force to be reckoned with. She is, from the start, using Bobby's powers in ways he's never even conceived of. Yeah, like, at one point she's running away from a couple X-Men who are chasing her, trying to retrieve her, and she dives into the Hudson River, and seconds later emerges three miles away because she just sort of merges with the water in the meantime, freezing it as she hits. It's cool. But I also really enjoy the type of power-up we're seeing here, because we've seen Iceman powered up before. We saw Mikhail Rasputin take over Iceman and use his reality-warping abilities to unlock Iceman's potential, and Iceman, like, turned into a crystalline form and then water and that sort of thing. But that was 
that was dangerous. That was painful. That was chaotic. And this, it's still jagged because Emma's new to Bobby's body, but it's all just very graceful, for lack of a better word. Well, and it's not about tapping into raw power. It's not about doing things that Bobby Drake would have been unable to do. It's about doing things he wouldn't have thought to do. Exactly, yeah. And, uh, man, you were talking about Sienkiewicz's inks here, selling Emma Mm -hmm. as Bobby. And obviously some of that's Lee Weeks, the penciler, as well. But I agree that the inks, the finishes are what really do it. Like, that's so evident, especially in these scenes where Bobby's body is just shifting into these inhuman forms. They just feel like Emma's personality. It's hard for me to describe it better than, than that. They feel like Emma's style, her ruthless, harsh, but beautiful style. Yeah, there's a protean fluidity to Emma as Iceman that I think demands Sienkiewicz's involvement in the same way that that no one else could have really created an established warlock as a character. Mm, yeah, I'd like to point out here also uh, that the first time Dracula appeared in X-Men, Sienkiewicz was the artist, and I don't know how that's exactly related, except that I love referencing that issue because Sienkiewicz's Dracula is glorious, and Marvel's Dracula is also glorious, and I'm not really a vampire kind of guy, but I do love Marvel's Dracula. I mean, you're a goofy vampire kind of guy pretty hard, Miles. I guess that's true. What are you talking about? I would never dream of taking Marvel's Dracula anything but seriously, as he is bound by the X-Men, talks about getting comfortable, and is then told by Cyclops to follow his heart. Well, right, because it's an entirely serious representation and story with with deep, you know, long-running consequences and profound humanistic morals. Hmm. Absolutely. Curse of the Mutants. Anyway, Emma is looking for the Hellions, her former students. You know, the ones that she used to train as an equal opposite to the New Mutants when she was in charge of the Massachusetts Academy. They're all dead. They are. She doesn't know that yet. And I really enjoy the way she approaches this. Like, because we get inside Emma's head in a way we really haven't very much before. She's the focal character, and you don't really get to see a lot of thought bubbles for a villain like Emma. Now she's less of a villain. I appreciate the way we see the combination of Emma's selfishness and her genuine concern for her charges. Like, it's always been both, and that internal monologue really gets that across. The whole reason I founded the Hellions was to protect my... was to make my life... was to help them. I did it all to help the children. Xavier sends the X-Men who are chasing Emma home, and he and Banshee go to cut Emma off because... They have a pretty good idea of where she's probably headed. Yeah, she is off to Frost Industries. Um, this is this is the the her corporate base where she, you know, used to reign supreme over large portions of of finance and presumably also for profit education. And when she gets there, she very effectively intimidates the security guards into letting her in. Um, That includes her being shot straight through her chest and then just glaring at them. In what is one of my favorite and I think one of the most, and again, pun not intended, chilling moments of the issue. Mm Mm-hmm. And then she encases one of her employees in ice. But she's going to get away with it. You know why? Why? Because possession is nine-tenths of the law. (laughs) You were saving that up, weren't you? Um, obviously. And I, I regret nothing. <laughs> Emma's got some regrets, though, because when she gets into Frost Industries, the computer tells her all her kids are dead. Or at least all the ones who were there at the time. Empath is fine. That jerk. 
I mean, if one is going to survive, why'd it have to be him? Seriously, I like the rest of them better. Anyway, Emma believes her home computer where she didn't believe the X-Men and tries to goad the guards into killing her until Xavier shows up to intervene. And then she gives him a clearer idea of exactly why she blames herself so specifically for this. It's not just because she trained the Hellions. It's not just because they were her students. It's because, as it turns out, she had scoured the Earth for reports of potential young mutants. She'd gone and found them, and when she had, she'd messed with their brain engrams to hide them from Cerebro. If she hadn't done that, if she had let Xavier find them, they might still be alive. And I think this is a really brilliant plot turn right here. Because Emma thought that she was a better alternative to Xavier and Magneto. She genuinely thought that. Also, there was some selfishness, obviously. We got that from her aborted internal monologue. But I think we need to have her humbled in this way to make it plausible that she would work with and to an extent for Xavier and Banshee and the X-Men. I've talked before about how one of the things I really love about Emma Frost is that she is entirely selfish and entirely generous at the same time. And those are things that really, really coexist for her as a character. Actually, I think almost exactly a year ago, because it was at the New York um, Sofa special last year. But um, yeah, I think I think this this issue is a great, great setup for that. Xavier and Banshee are compassionate, especially Banshee, who says, hey, this is awful, I'm so sorry but there's still a next generation of mutants and maybe we can work together to help them out. I feel like we're a broken record at this point saying, and this leads to Generation X, but I do want to keep emphasizing all of this was built so deliberately and relatively gracefully. Yeah, no, it's it's nicely done. Um, meanwhile, back at the mansion, somewhat less gracefully, but no less deliberately, Bishop has made a holographic version of his sister Shard to harangue him while he trains in the danger room. Yeah, because, you know, he's all alone in the present day, and he's really been trying to not live in the past, which is to say our future, his past. But, you know, nonetheless, he built a perfect holographic simulacrum of Shard to converse with. I'm actually really impressed you could make a perfect representation of her, or if not a perfect representation, then at least a person, uh, a hologram who's really coming off as a person. Oh, I've got this. So he came from the future, and he came from the future with all of his stuff, or at least all of the stuff he had on him. Given the level of technology he's working with, it's reasonably possible that he had all of the coding for basically a shard simulacrum, for, for you know the equivalent of a wallet photo of shard on a keychain in his pocket or something. I mean, I like that concept, and if that's the case, I wish they would do more with it, because that's really cool. And it's definitely the kind of obsessive thing he would have done. Oh, big time, yeah. But this hologram, weirdly enough, is not only going to stick around, but will later join X-Factor as an independent member of the team, and all I can say is, freaking X-Men. We should have saved that for a cold open. Uh, You know, we'll do it 100 episodes from now. No one will remember. We probably won't either. I don't know. People keep on tweeting that they've been marathoning the show. I have worries. I'm going to turn into Flaming Carrot. That's like his origin story. Oh, God. I'm trying to think of what the... I I guess the X-Men equivalent of Flaming Carrot would just be Mimic. Maybe. Maybe, yeah. I don't know. Calvin Rankin, he's he's kind of a fuck-up, and things don't end well for him, so that's probably not good either. He tries. He's got a really, really, really good cameo in um, that Forget-Me-Not annual. Sure does, yeah. So, 
Professor X, after all of this happens, is thinking to himself, looking at these this list of dead Hellions, and he makes a solemn vow. That's right. With the names of Emma's dead students on his computer screen. He solemnly swears that never again will the blood of innocence be spilt in the conflict between races and factions. Professor X, you haven't read Kyle and Yost's new X-Men run, have you? Or, like, anything else? Yeah, I was gonna say, or anything preceding it? Or any of the title that you appear in? Uh, still, I mean, intentions count to a point, and dude's got some great intentions. You tried, bro. You tried. And that takes us to Uncanny X-Men Annual number 8, which has a couple of stories, the first of which is called Trust is a Two-Edged Sword, and is about Caliban. Let's talk a little about who Caliban is and what he's been up to. We first met the bald, chalky-white, pointed-eared, and lonely Caliban back in 1981. And that's when he kidnapped Kitty Pride so she'd be his friend and or possibly his bride. That didn't go great, and he's had kind of an awkward relationship with the X-Men ever since, as have the Morlocks, the faction with which he's long been associated. Things stayed pretty rough for Caliban. Yeah, he was one of the sewer-dwelling Morlocks, of course, and he saw most of his friends brutally killed by the Marauders during the Mutant Massacre. Now, after the Mutant Massacre... X-Factor took in many of the surviving Morlocks, including Caliban, but Caliban was more concerned with revenge than with X-Factor's twin missions of knocking down walls and child endangerment. So Caliban paid a visit to Apocalypse, who upgraded Caliban into the beefy and sharp new Horseman of Death. Now, because nothing ever goes really well for Caliban, he didn't even get a horse as part of this deal. It would have had to be a pretty big horse anyway, he's huge at this point. And he mostly used his new horseman powers to do his damnedest to murder Sabretooth, his least favorite marauder, always unsuccessfully and always sustaining significant damage himself. Sabretooth, for his part, is currently a prisoner of the X-Mansion, being forcibly rehabilitated by Professor X. Could this be relevant? Well, nah. Let's find out from writer Glenn Hurdling, Penciler Ian Churchill, inkers Hillary Barda and Bud LaRosa, and colorists Dana Morshead and Mike Thomas. So, I didn't know who Glenn Hurdling was, but I looked him up, and he did some editorial work for Marvel for a while, and he wrote that one Namor issue where the text was straight from the Rime of the Ancient Mariner, which is actually super awesome. But more importantly, you know, I'm just going to quote from Wikipedia here. In 2016, Hurdley launched a YouTube channel where he performs a variety of popular songs using manualism, the art of playing flatulent tones by squeezing air through his hands. The selections include a number of Christmas carols. Follow your heart, Glenn Hurdling. This channel only has like 30-something subscribers and listeners. We should probably fix that. I mean, there are only a few videos, but this is a whole thing, man. Is is, is this one of many such channels, or is he a pioneer of manualism? I have no idea. But this annual, this is actually the final year for a while that Marvel is doing numbered annuals. After this, they would use the year the annual came out instead of numbering. So in this final momentous numbered occasion, well, Caliban shows up in the woods and scares off a bunch of camping teenagers in order to steal their snacks. Caliban. Caliban's wearing, like, a stitched-together cloak over his red-and-white horseman outfit, but the way it's drawn, it's, like, stitched together from these tiny six-inch scraps, so it must have taken freaking forever to assemble. You'd think you'd just get a big tarp or something. 
maybe it's one of those like pre-printed Halloween things. And then he ripped it up and like sewed it partway back together. So there were a couple real seams on it, but most of it is, is just printed on. Caliban's gone through a great deal of trauma. So, you know, his judgment may be a little odd at this point. He brings this stolen junk food down into the Morlock tunnels to give to someone he calls Spark Child. That's right. Caliban has continued his long-standing tradition of of kidnapping the youngest member of the X-Men. And Jubilee, the kidnapped person, of course, remains very much herself. The name's Jubilee Buster, not Spark Child. And you call that food? I call it a casting call for the next Alka-Seltzer commercial. Caliban explains why he captured Jubilee. The X-Men have taken in his mortal enemy Sabretooth. I mean, this dude killed so many Morlocks, and the two of them have fought brutally a ton of times. And Caliban wants to do a hostage exchange so he can get his revenge. This scenario inevitably ends up with Caliban either dead or, like, bleeding out in a sewer. I mean, Caliban's life tends to go in that direction. His life is genuinely terrible. Well, he knows, he should, he knows at this point that he cannot take Sabretooth out in a fair fight. And I think, I think this is, at this point, he's, he's basically trying to commit suicide by Sabretooth. Yeah, I mean, that might very well be. But the X-Men get the hostage ransom whatever note from Caliban, and I love the way this is done. It's written very childishly and thoroughly misspelled, except for the name Kitty Pride. Caliban cannot handle doubled consonants, but he does in Kitty's name. I didn't notice that. I did notice that the misspellings are kind of implausible misspellings, and the whole thing has a very Thomas Hardy vibe to it. No, oh, because we were too many. But every because we were too many. But everybody forgets that when we first met Caliban way back in the eighties, he was this simple, almost childish man. Like he clearly hadn't really been socialized the way most people are. And since he's been this big hulking brute, we haven't really seen that side of him. And I think juxtaposing those things, juxtaposing that sort of psychological, mental, almost innocence with his physical, destructive uh, viciousness, that works really well. And that adds to the tragedy that is Caliban. Does it remind you a little bit of that period in X-Factor when Beast was gradually losing his mind? Oh, yeah, but like way darker. Yeah, I mean, it's a, a very different dynamic. It's kind of moved in reverse. Um, yeah. Oh, Stevie Hunter is also randomly there. Making making her first cameo in a very long time, I think. Uh, yeah, it was her dance class that Jubilee was kidnapped out of when Hunter stepped out for a moment. And this is actually the last time we're going to see Stevie until freaking 2017 when she shows up again as a congressional representative. I mean, that's a great way to come back, but for a character that was like always around in New Mutants, they've just sort of forgotten about her at this point. Do you think that there are other kids in that dance class? I wonder... Like, are they just all quivering and crying after seeing this big rag-clad man show up and kidnap one of their buds? I don't know. They've been in dance classes with the X-Men for a while. They're probably just like, eh, it's Wednesday. They're just all on their 1994 Shi'ar smartphones. They don't care. So, Professor Xavier and Jean Grey go to the still-imprisoned Sabretooth, and he, of course, is still uh, secure. He's behind laser bars. He's still in his muzzle and his soft paws. I'm I'm so entertained at that idea. They look kind of like soft paws, but like silver instead of bright pink or whatever. You know those things you like just paste to your cat's claws so you don't declaw them like a jerk? Yeah, but they just go over the claws. They're not like 
kitty gloves. Right, but you know, this is the Marvel Universe. Everything is more impressive. And Sabretooth says, okay, he'll go along with his plan, but only if they give him the glow, that psychic ecstasy that Birdie used to give him, the X-Men have refused to. He also demands that they remove his uh, soft, soft claws, which... They do not agree to. No. And I love how coldly sadistic Jean Grey always is to Sabretooth here, because she's totally got that steel within her, and it doesn't come out for anybody the way it comes out for Sabretooth. Yeah, so she decides, okay, sure, you can have the glow. How about all the glow? How about more glow? More glow? You want some more glow? More glow, Sabretooth? How about some more glow? Enough yet? Nope. More glow. Yeah, and uh, Sabretooth is like, whoa, okay, you win, you win. But there's another piece of this puzzle because Caliban, of course, mentioned he would only trust Kitty Pride. She's the only person he'll trust to bring him Sabretooth. And Kitty, Shadowcat, shows up from England to get the plan from Xavier. And she is not happy about it. This is the second time in a row that Xavier has called her and said, yeah, we want you to trick and betray a guy who has a crush on you to manipulate him into doing what we want. Cool? Cool. Yeah, yeah, I feel awful for Kitty, but thankfully she talks back like a champ. So you want me to betray another friendship like you had me do with Peter? Gee, Professor, I've never had many friends, but you're doing your best to put the kibosh on the ones I have left. In the tunnel, Sabretooth and Kitty almost immediately start arguing about what to do and almost immediately thus get in a fight. And, you know, yeah, it's a fight scene, whatever. But the important part here is that as Sabretooth attacks, Kitty's like, hey, you know this new blue and gold Excalibur costume that I got that just has a bunch of doodads on it? You know what those doodads are? They're motherfucking nunchucks. And she pulls off the piping on part of her costume and straightens it out and pulls it in half and there's a chain in the middle and she starts fighting fighting him with nunchucks and I'm so excited about this and it reminds me kind of about this spam message that I get sometimes at work about a US Marine Corps neck knife and I've never read the message but I can only assume it's a knife that wraps around your neck and then you pull it off and you fight saber tooth with it and I probably shouldn't click on those messages because I think they'd just infect my computer with something but the point is nunchucks from Kitty's costume and I love everything about this and this redeems any faults this issue might have so anyway, she puts his hand into his head um, and phases it in and threatens to kill him, and then he backs off. Yeah, so uh, there's that. And Caliban, of course, is waiting, and he traps them in this aqueduct. He's going to drown them and tells Kitty, hey, just phase through. You'll be okay. I just want Sabretooth. Which was the main reason that he asked her to be the one to bring Sabretooth in, because he could set a trap for Sabretooth, and then Kitty could get out fine. I mean, I think he also was being honest. I think she is the only X-Man he genuinely trusts. Yeah, also feasible. But suddenly, a giant squid attacks! That's right, Kitty had nunchucks built into her collar, and there's a giant squid just randomly in the Morlock tunnels. Now, I don't think this is like a Morlock that can turn into a giant squid. I think it's just a giant goddamn squid in this chest-deep water. Here's the real question. Is it the same giant squid that attacked Madeline Pryor and Scott Summers on their honeymoon? Oh, maybe. Uh, maybe it's got this long X-Men fighting career. It made its way all the way from the ocean into the sewers just to fight more X-Men. I mean, that's pretty much how the Marvel Universe works, so... Pretty much. Also, it kind of reminds me of that boss fight from Final Fantasy IV, Octomammoth, who was just Octomam in the original translation because you couldn't fit Mammoth. Uh, it looks kind of like that. Oh, I like the idea of you know Octomam. You have to really be, be respectful to, to her because she is, she is, she is a squid, but also you know your elder and and a, an individual of higher status than you. Well, nobody's very respectful to the squid or otherwise. Aw. 
Sabretooth just tries to use the distraction to make his escape. But Caliban, of course, expects treachery from Sabretooth and so is there to punch him and also to shame him. You spineless worm! You would leave the kitty pride alone to face this creature, even though she saved your miserable life moments ago! You disgust, Caliban! Kitty Pride, do not worry. Friend Caliban is here to save you. It's it's worth noting, if you can't hear it, that he says Kitty Pride as one word. Because he's still adorable, even though he's a horrifying blade monster. Sabretooth, though, says fuck it and actually fights the squid. He tears it apart. He saves everybody. But just as it looks like he's maybe going to be a good dude, he shoves his kitten-mitten-covered hands into a currently-phasing kitty to disrupt their electronics and free himself. Damn it, Sabretooth. This is why we can't have nice things. Kitty and Jubilee do subdue Sabretooth again, but not before he claws the crap out of Caliban's face. Specifically, he cuts Caliban's face in a way that looks identical to the hound marks that we've seen on Rachel Summers and the other Earth-811 hounds. Given that Caliban's powers would make him a very good hound, he can find mutants. So Ahab in that dark future would really want to use him to track down mutants. This is really thematically appropriate. And it's beautifully conveyed. Churchill draws this incredible reveal of Caliban's look of despair and agony with tears going down his face as we get the reveal of those deep hound scars. See, you interpreted this as a thematic link. For me, what it implies is that Caliban is in fact the basis or the inspiration for Ahab's Hound program. I don't think that's the case, though. Like, admittedly, there's a lot of X-Force I haven't read that Caliban's in, but I don't think that link was ever really made explicit. No, but it's a current, an, an event happening in the current timeline that connects potentially causally to at least a skewed version or at least history repeating to an extent from Rachel's timeline. Maybe, yeah. But that's basically the end of the story because Caliban just runs away in his pain and says Caliban's always going to be alone and it's really sad. And now Kitty's life is just a little bit worse than it was before, which is a theme in the 90s. But we do have one more story in Uncanny X-Men Annual Number 8, and that one's called And Nothing Will Ever Be the Same. It's written by Jeff Loeb, the line art's by Tim Sale, and the colors are by Gregory Wright, and... I really like this story. It's very short, and it does things exactly as it should. It's got one point to make, and it makes it. It's something that I think we've seen really, really commonly in annual backup stories, just sort of the the small side story that's got one thing to do and just does it really beautifully. I'm thinking from X Factor, really kind of all over the map. Yeah, totally. And this one's about Bishop, and it's about his past with, hey, Malcolm and Randall. I love Malcolm and Randall. His buddies from the XSE, the mutant future cop group that he was a big part of. I remember those guys. They're dead now. They are. But in this, well, we assume it's a flashback, they're not. And I love their banter. I love that Bishop is the straight man to any group he's part of. As he begins their plan, okay, we go on three, one. And Malcolm breaks in immediately. Wait, does that mean one, two, three, and then we go? To which Randall responds. Or is it one, two, and we move when you say three? They're very much the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern to his Hamlet. Oh man, that's that's very much the case. And now I just want to see Hamlet, except everybody's dressed like the XSE with those bandanas. Oh, see, I want to see Tom Stoppard's Malcolm and Randall are dead. I love this plan. And in this scene, the art is fucking gorgeous. 
Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale are kind of famous for working together. They did, they did Batman Along Halloween. They did all those like color Marvel books like uh, Daredevil Yellow and stuff like that. And their art here, the art here by Tim Sale is just gorgeous. Everything is all shadowed blues with like just this washed out red for the bandanas of the XSE and this sickly green sky. Like it's clearly a flashback, but it's also clearly that harsh color drains timeline that Bishop comes from. It's funny, you're talking about sale in this context, but I feel like the credit for what you're describing mostly goes to Gregory Wright, the colorist. Uh, you know, that's actually a good point. I think I'm just so used to seeing sales art colored that way. But yeah, absolutely. Like, this is a really stellar creative team. I don't know if this colorist worked with Loeb and Sale on their other work, but um, I hope so. And speaking of the creative team, Jeff Loeb is going to be taking over X-Force pretty soon. Uh, yeah, there's some good stuff there and some less good stuff, but I think mostly some good stuff. Our heroes are withdrawing after a mission in this sequence. They're taking heavy fire, and Randall is winged, and Malcolm hangs from a cliff, but Bishop saves them. And Malcolm thanks him profusely. Bishop, sir, I never doubted. I mean, I knew we'd be safe because you'll always be there for us. Be there for us. Be there for us. Because, of course, it's a danger room simulation. Because what else does Bishop have to do than torture himself about the people he failed to save again more? Yeah, we saw some of that with the shard hologram in that last issue we covered. Here it's Malcolm and Randall. He's trying so hard to get past his past, but he seems to think that the only way out is through. And I think for Bishop, like, he's just beating himself up. You know what this situation calls for? Rollerblades. <laughs> yup, because Jubilee comes in to drag Bishop out blading. I love the two of them. I love the two of them so much. I love that this is her official solution to brooding adults, too. Right, she's done this multiple times before. And Bishop says no, but as she leaves in a mall rat huff, he says, well, hey, maybe, like, a long walk? And they leave together... And it's really lovely. Yeah, there's hulking, serious Bishop and tiny, gleeful Jubilee, like, with their arms on each other's shoulders. And I think what this story gets across is that, A, Bishop is never going to be alone, even though he feels alone. There's always going to be someone who's there for him and who he can be there for. But, B, is that there's always going to be some goddamn goofball for him to be straight man to. And that's important. And that brings us to our final issue of the episode, Uncanny X-Men number 315, Peers. And this one has got some background. Right, yeah. You know how I mentioned that we're doing a lot of sort of wrapping up loose ends? Here we're wrapping up a loose end no one was actually concerned about, I'm pretty sure. And that is the fate of that one acolyte. Not Colossus. The other one. So the Acolytes are, of course, a quasi-religious group of mutants who revere Magneto as a messiah. Now, a while back, the Acolytes thought Magneto was dead, and during that time, they kind of went on a murder spree. They were torturing and killing a lot of humans in Magneto's name, and a young neophyte acolyte started feeling really, really iffy about that. You know, considering that Magneto had himself been a Holocaust survivor and, uh, yeah, that. Now, his objections reached their peak when he finally freed and imprisoned Mara McTaggart, whom they were planning to kill. And the other acolytes decided they would have none of this nonsense. And the neophyte skedaddled quite thoroughly after freeing Moira and helping the X-Men get to the Acolytes. I mean, fair enough. 
Meanwhile, Colossus had begun to feel pretty iffy about Xavier's dream after um, losing his entire family horribly over the course of about a dozen issues. So Colossus joined Magneto's acolytes, figuring that maybe Magneto's methods would result in fewer dead family members than Xavier's. Although, honestly, Pete, you don't really have any family members left, so uh, you can't really do a scientific comparison. Yeah, I mean, why not just stay with the X-Men? What's left to lose? Right? Magneto, alas, uh, then had his mind wiped by Professor Xavier in a big fight during Fatal Attractions, so the Master of Magnetism was mainly communicating with his followers at this point through the subtle nuances of his beard growth. Currently, Magneto's former second-in-command, Exodus, is in charge, conveying what he claims are messages from Magneto to the Acolytes. And... This is interesting, and I want to talk about it more later, but if this sounds like the previous situation where Fabian Cortez was manipulating everyone and insisting that he spoke for Magneto, there are parallels, and they're deliberate, and they make the differences that much more stark. Exodus is an interesting guy, and I'm not going to go into his backstory at length here, but it's a ride. Oh boy, it's a ride throughout centuries and franchises and all sorts of stuff. Oh yeah. Which brings us to the actual Uncanny X-Men number 315, written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Roger Cruz, inked by Dan Green, Joe Rubenstein, Bud LaRosa, and Hilary Barta, and colored by Steve Guccolato and Marie Javins. The Acolytes have since captured the neophyte who had helped Moira, and he is about to stand trial. Colossus is now serving as, as the kid's defense lawyer. And we should point out, we keep referring to the kid as the neophyte, because the kid doesn't get a name. He just has this, this rank, like a neophyte is sort of a uh, religious position that's very, very new and young and low-ranking. Miles... Members of Project Mayhem have no name. Well, there you go. God, the Acolytes are kind of like douchey Project Mayhem people, aren't they? Um, first of all, that's a redundancy, but yes, they are. <laughs> so at this point, the kid is still the neophyte. And I kind of like that. I kind of like that he's just this unimportant little member of the organization that does something very important. Later on, his name is going to be Neophyte, which is a weird fucking name for a person. I think people just sort of forgot. Does that mean that he's Neophyte the Neophyte? I mean, yeah, but eventually he's no longer a Neophyte Neophyte. He's a veteran Neophyte. Now, as this kid's um, defense attorney, Colossus is wearing a big fuchsia robe, and I gotta say, I really appreciate that the Acolytes are devoted to upholding not only Magneto's dream, but his fashion sense. Oh yeah, you gotta stay on brand. On fuchsia, fuchsia brand. And the kid calls Colossus on his complicated motives immediately. Is that what this is about, Peter? Are you pleading my case for betraying the Acolytes? Or your own for having turned your back on the X-Men? Oh, snap. Unfortunately, there's no time for Colossus to really consider this, let alone respond. There's not even time to prepare the defense, because it's time for the trial, right now. Oh god, it's like one of those dreams where you didn't memorize your lines and you're not wearing pants. I mean, I guess Colossus isn't wearing pants. He's wearing a robe. He might be wearing pants under the robe. You can't tell. It's a very long robe. True. It's deliberately pants ambiguous. Now, it's funny. I mentioned that there are a lot of superficial similarities between what Exodus is doing and what Cortez was doing. So Exodus 
limits access to Magneto and punishes anyone who happens to see him. He claims to speak exclusively for Magneto and to, to be the, the voice of his will while Magneto himself is, is functionally completely incapacitated. The difference here is that Exodus is very much a true believer and he seems to genuinely be dedicated to and believe that he's doing what's right and what is Magneto's will. Like Exodus is all in. I get the impression that there's a part of Exodus that knows exactly what he's doing, that knows he's just making this stuff up, that he's telling the Acolytes what he thinks they should hear so that things will go smoothly or so that he'll stay powerful or whatever. But that at the same time, there's a larger part of him that's just sort of tamping that part down that's saying, no, no, this totally is right. I mean, it's the Sylvia Brown principle. If you're a good enough grifter, you can convince yourself that it's not a grift. Oh, yeah, good point. I actually feel kind of bad for Exodus. Like, I don't think he deserves to be compared to Sylvia Brown. I don't think <laughs> right? anyone really deserves that. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah. And so, for for instance, when he punishes the Acolyte who comes in and, and sees the catatonic Magneto, he seems genuinely to be doing that because he doesn't want Magneto to be subject to people's scrutiny when he's at his most vulnerable yeah exactly and so he responds very angrily to the acolyte uh, scanner i believe who who does show up and dare to look upon the master of magnetism also uh one of the acolytes is named javits and it's not spelled the same as the javits center but as we are currently preparing for new york comic-con i find that really extra funny i mean javits is a really big guy he could probably fit at least a small convention inside of himself but is he really inconveniently located and terribly laid out? I mean, I don't know. The art's pretty good in this issue, so I wouldn't say he's terribly laid out. Does the F train reach him? I mean, I think we need at least a full Marvel crossover exploring that question. I think so, too. The prosecutor in this trial is Amelia Vogt, who you may remember as Professor Xavier's long-ago ex. EX, not X. And Colossus, you know, knows this backstory, and he knows that she's she's not not she's not stupid, and he asks her why she's following so blindly, and her response is kind of chilling. I found, when left to make my own choices in life, I invariably make the wrong ones. So instead, for better or for worse, I do what I am told. Damn. Despite this, though, despite the fact that she's prosecutor. As she speaks, she's not only challenging Neophyte, but she's sort of challenging the ideology of the Acolytes, and more specifically, she's challenging Exodus's role as unquestioned leader of what's basically this cult. She is really cool, and she handles this really well. We also get a Rusty and Skids cameo as the other Acolytes look on disapprovingly. Damn it, and Exodus calls her Skids Blevins. He says Rusty Collins and Skids Blevins. Like, if he was consistent and called Rusty Firefist because everyone should use their mutant name or whatever, fine. But you can't be, you can't do that. If you're going to use one person's real first name, use the other. Her name is Sally. Her name is Sally Blevins. Her name is Sally Blevins. Miles, first of all, I'm pretty sure that Rusty is not Rusty Collins' given name either. I mean, we've never heard anything else. It could be. Pretty sure it's not. Pretty sure the only kid whose parents have ever named them Rusty is Mark Trails Ward. I mean, there's Rusty Venture. Is there? Valid. 
Anyway, this is interesting because Colossus, his argument basically boils down to Magneto is a nuanced dude, so actually the neophyte was being loyal to Magneto, or at least facets of him, by recognizing that nuance. Because remember, Colossus was on the X-Men during Magneto's tenure as headmaster and as de facto leader of the X-Men. I would not never call them friends, but Colossus certainly came to respect and to a large extent understand Magneto during that time, that multi-year period. You know what this is, Miles? What's that? This is how schisms happen. Next issue. Mark my words, we're going to see Colossus nailing 95 complaints to the door of Asteroid M. I mean, are they on Asteroid M at this point? I thought Asteroid M blew up. I'm not sure where they are at this point. They're in space. They're on an asteroid. I think I think by virtue of being home base for the Acolytes, it's Asteroid M. Asteroid M is, is where Magneto is. Oh, uh, okay, okay. Asteroid M is a state of mind. Perhaps the real Asteroid M was in our hearts. You should see a doctor for that. Yeah, it really, really hurts. Now, apparently, among other things, saying Charles Xavier's name is blasphemy on Asteroid M, which is weird, but yeah, okay, you do you. And Vote has to save the kid from, un- from other angry acolytes, and everyone gets mad at her. Exodus comes down to render the verdict... And Colossus is so certain that it's going to be a death sentence that he interrupts with an impromptu closing argument. No! The boy's only crime was the strength of his own convictions. Something Magneto, as I knew him, would have respected and honored. For he was a man whose entire family was slaughtered by an army of soldiers, men following orders. Those same men sent millions of their fellow human beings into a holocaust raging with the heat of stupidity and ignorance. I came here to Avalon because I believed we were going to be better than that. It is the very same reason this boy came to you. Is he to be punished for refusing to sit back and blindly follow orders? Is he to be condemned for thinking differently, for refusing to stand back and watch as another living being was beaten and tortured? Is this how far we've come since Magneto's own youth? That we are willing, some of us eager, to send one more being to his death because he is different from us? If so, then we should all follow, because eventually that is where we will all end up. Anyone who disagrees, no exodus. If Magneto's life has taught us anything at all, it was how not to follow the orders of others, but to follow as he has done the dictates of his own heart. That's right, Colossus. What would Dracula do? But damn, Piotr, hell of a speech. Yeah, yeah, no, he did a, a good job, and he does a good enough job that um, Exodus exiles the kid and pretends that that was what he was going to say all along. And finally, as Exodus struts out in frustration, Magneto smiles enigmatically. And that part's not going to go anywhere, but it is a cool little end to the issue because honestly, I think Colossus is absolutely right. I think Magneto would absolutely approve of that argument and of what the neophyte did. So just as Colossus questions the dogma of the Acolytes, you, dear listeners, question the continuity of the Marvel. And Aaron asks via email, Much has been discussed of the X-Men's nature as a metaphor for minority groups and the ways in which that metaphor both works and doesn't. But reading House of X and Powers of X has gotten me interested in a different facet of that metaphor. 
Are there any notable series where being a mutant can be seen as a power fantasy for members of minority groups? The idea that a marginalized group of people with the literal power necessary to force systems to change seems like it could be a very enticing fantasy. So I can think of a couple periods of X-Men history where that would certainly qualify. I think the most obvious for me is House of M, the reality created by the Scarlet Witch, where mutants were very much the ruling class. They were in charge, they were respected, they were great. But at the same time, that was so obviously a super dark dystopia that maybe that wouldn't work so well. You know, I mean, a lot of the mutant characters were figuring that part out pretty soon. There's also the Phoenix Five thing from Avengers vs. X-Men, where five members of the X-Men got imbued with the Phoenix Force and essentially turned Earth into a perfect civilization. They fixed all of its problems before the stupid Avengers had to punch them and ruin everything. I mean, okay, maybe the mutants weren't fully innocent, but still, things were going really well there for a while. But that one might not qualify either because it wasn't the fact that they were mutants that caused them to be in charge. It was the fact that they were imbued with the Phoenix Force. But at the same time... The Phoenix Force and being a mutant were very much intertwined during that story, so I don't know. So I thought about the Phoenix Five, and I actually, I, I don't think it, it really qualifies just because, like House of M, they're so clearly being set up for a fall. They're, they're being set up to be taken down by their own hubris or by editorial fiat or by whatever. So my answer to this, and I feel pretty strongly about this, and this is, this is a controversial story decision that leads to controversial places. It may not be your jam. Um, but for me, the answer to this question is unequivocally Dark Reign. Oh, right. The one where Norman Osborn took over all the superhero teams and made his own versions of them that were staffed by former villains who took the identities of current heroes. Yeah, and the X-Men engage in active and organized and successful resistance in ways that, among other things, lead to the founding of Utopia. It's really cool. I think it's an incredibly good story. It's one of my favorite arcs, honestly, and I think I think one of the reasons it's one of my favorite arcs is that it is the one that both leans into the idea of X-Men as a minority group under an actively and aggressively and broadly oppressive regime and lets them really, really push back and to push back for themselves and for their own safety and for their own self-determination, not just for a world that hates and fears them. That is a really good answer. Yeah, I say let's go with that one. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, what's the multiverse designation of the podcast? So I've been thinking about this question all day. And um, we do not have an official Marvel designation. And I think that's a problem. Yeah. So... You know, we have, Miles, we have a lot of listeners, a whole lot of listeners, and they're, they're nice and they're really engaged listeners. And for the most part, we have worked really hard over the five and change years we've been doing this podcast to harness those powers exclusively for good and to not abuse them. And I think I'm going to make an exception to this rule right now. And I think I'm going to embrace pettiness. Now, I'm going to say, listeners, this is the official start of Jay and Miles' campaign for inclusion in the goddamn official Marvel multiverse. I want to see a universe where Apocalypse is a friendly middle manager. I want our children to grow up with a multiverse where there is an Earth where Shinobi Shaw definitely knows how to sex. 
I want generations to come to know without doubt that Warren Kenneth Worthington III does everything like a hawk. We have Earth on fire. We have an Earth where the Avengers all have beards, which is a great Earth, by the way. But we don't have an Earth about the Marvel Universe as described in this very, very accurate, never making things up because they're funny, never in any way tilted or slanted podcast Marvel Universe. So Marvel, what is up with this? Why is there not a corner of the multiverse where Miles and I are the omnipotent weird gods of a weird little happy world? So I did some research, actually. I I looked into what was available. And normally, multiversal designations come from, well, a number of different places. But when there's a system, it's usually based on on the debut date. Now, there are a couple of fan universes that use both versions of what what ours would be. And, you know, we're not going to step on those toes because we think think that, that respecting fan spaces is really important. I did, however, find an option. Marvel, this is an unoccupied universe, unoccupied Earth. It fits thematically, um, and that is Earth 441. Because the sample rate we use to record, and many podcasters use to record, is 44.1 kilohertz. Right? It's perfect. Marvel, no one else is using Earth 441. Give it to us. We'll do right by it. Listeners, write to your editors. Write to corporate management. Write to Disney. Write to your senators. And hashtag on social media... Earth X-Plain. I love this plan. It's on. We're a fully listener-supported podcast, uh, including in ways other than yelling at authority figures about giving us our own Earth, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Let's go on to the angry Claremontian narrator of, I don't know, maybe of Earth 441. (sighs) Look at you, Nate Klein. You gave up everything, your family, your home, your ideals, and for what? A creed you scarcely even believe in, and the hawkish supervision of Nikolai Raymond, who watches your every move as if he knows, even before you do, that your betrayal is inevitable. On a... More cheerful note, and speaking of of denizens of Earth uh, 441, the mic here goes to Sexy Dracula. Like the White Queen of the Hellfire Club, Dracula has spent his share of time in a state of oblivion. And like the White Queen, Dracula always returns. And every time I awaken alone, on my silk sheets and native soil in Castle Sexy Dracula, I too feel the urge to seek out companionship, to possess another. But to claim the body of another so inelegantly, girl, I thought you had class. Look to Emma. No, not you, Frost, the patron named Emma, who always confirms the enthusiastic consent of her sensual, breathless prey. Or look to El Queso de la Muerte, 
whose beguiling and forbidden dance displays clear, seductive intention without uninviting pressure. Don't you see, Frost? You can only truly possess the willing, the waiting, the longing, the yearning. And then, you can bring them back to Castle Sexy Dracula, where you will get freaky all night long. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, Portland, Oregon, and Earth 441, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes of our potentially soon-to-be-canonical podcast come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions for every episode and details on exactly who to write to urge Marvel to give us our own universe. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay in the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And be sure to take the time to rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. And write to your senators, urging them to make us canonical within the larger Marvel multiverse. Next week, we'll check back in with Excalibur. And wrap up the last of the preamble to the Phalanx Covenant. I want jorts on every pterosaur. I want an octopus on every tunic. A Harvey in every garage and a Janet in every pot.